Hey, this is Mike Lawrence, and you're listening to the Nerd by Word Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back into another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We have a super special interview with one of my favorite comedians, Mike Lawrence. He's a huge nerd, just like us, just like you. Um, and we look forward to what he has to say about the Snyder Cut, about uh, DC Fandom, the future of the MCU, and what comics he's reading right now. But first, we've got to hit it with some nerd news. Dave, what you got? So here we are, the cat's out of the bag. Microsoft has revealed several things about the next generation of gaming, and there is some exciting news ahead. So first of all, in addition to the Xbox Series X releasing in November, there is also going to be a budget version next-gen console for Microsoft called the Xbox Series S. The console is significantly smaller and cheaper than the next main uh, generation console. Now, according to a report by Forbes, the Series S will retail at $299, while the Series X will retail at $499. Now, obviously, there are some trade-offs for that $200 difference. The Series S is really an all-digital console. It'll not have a disk drive. It'll still feature a solid-state drive, just like the Series X, but it's smaller at only 512 gigabytes. Finally, the console will not actually game in true 4K, but will be upscaling to 4K. It will still support ray tracing and will also be 60% smaller than the Series X. Now, I think this is a really smart move by Microsoft. I can see a lot of casual gamers going for this consoles. Unconfirmed rumors right now, as of the time of us recording this episode, is that the PlayStation 5 will cost about $499 too. So the slightly underpowered Series S really will be the perfect entry-level console for gamers who want to be part of the next generation without actually shelling out $500. Even better, however, is that Microsoft has built this solid service with Game Pass over the last few years, which features over 100 games at all times, with some rotating off the service while new ones are added. Simply put, The Series S is the Game Pass machine. Are there trade-offs? Absolutely. But with a Game Pass subscription, you'll be able to buy into the new generation, have uh, over 100 games at your fingertips. It's a great value overall. And I'm really excited that they're doing this. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. And I am proud to announce that I'm sticking with Xbox, you know, into the next generation, unless Sony does something that just completely flips the script. Um, I did see that uh, the console is set to be released November the 10th, um, pre-order starting September the 22nd. And in a separate news article, I saw that EA Play, uh, you know, a popular service that a lot of, especially sports gamers, uh, enjoy is now going to be included with Game Pass Ultimate, so it's not a separate fee. So they took something like Game Pass Ultimate um, and just made it that much better. 
Um, so I'm, I can't wait. I will probably go with the Series S myself. Um, I prefer the all digital. The second Xbox One that I purchased was an S and it was the all digital. I don't have any need for games with small kids. Um, they like to use them as frisbees. So I, I much prefer the all digital and I don't have any need for a disk drive. Um, especially when they have, you know, we've talked about this a hundred times on the show, like when they have digital discounts, you know, like 80 to 90% off publisher sales, you, you, you love to see it. So um, I don't really need to disk drive that much. Um, and, you know, if I, I really, really wanted to, you know, you could get like an external one and hook it up via USB, you know, if you you, you needed to. Um, I also have an external hard drive. So the 512 gigabyte hard drive doesn't scare me. I, I already have a two terabyte uh, external hard drive. So I'm all set there. But I'm I'm super excited for where we're going. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I just Microsoft uh messed up a lot I think uh in in the early goings of launching the the Xbox uh 1 and it's so uh, exciting to see them, you know, making some really smart choices this time around. Now, there there's obviously still some problems with, you know, first party developers and having lots of exclusives and a lot of Fans of of Sony will harp on it. Look, we have all these amazing exclusives. And I'll be the first to say, yes, I totally agree with that. There are amazing uh, PlayStation exclusives. The Spider-Man game, Horizon Zero Dawn, God of War. There's really good stuff there. But I think Microsoft is positioning themselves extremely well for this upcoming console generation. And I'm very excited to see what they come up with next. Now, as far as news goes... Uh, this is a weird one, Chris. I'm really excited to talk about your next uh, news story. What have you got? What I have is the strange case of Ray Fisher and Warner Brothers. Uh, in July, actor Ray Fisher, who plays Cyborg in Justice League uh, and the DCEU, uh, accused director Joss Whedon, who famously came in and replaced Zack Snyder uh, due to a family emergency and finished off uh, the Justice League film, uh, he accused Whedon of quote, gross, abusive, unprofessional, and completely unacceptable behavior. Now, no specific details were included in his statement, but he did state that former WB co-president of production John Berg and former DC Entertainment president and CCO and DC, you know, Titan Jeff Johns were complicit with the behavior and were actively enabling it. Whedon declined to comment, and Berg said it was, quote, uh, categorically untrue that we enabled any unprofessional behavior. Uh, Warner Media launched uh, an investigation into the situation. Fisher wrote in August about this investigation, quote, I believe this investigation will show that Jeff Johns, Joss Whedon, John Berg, and others grossly abused their power during the uncertainty of AT&T's merger with Time Warner. Warner then came out and claimed that Fisher refused to participate in the investigation after they hired a third-party investigator. Fisher then, <coughs> and then, and then uh, Warner Media said on September the 4th, quote, This investigator has attempted multiple times to meet with Mr. Fisher to discuss his concerns, but to date, Mr. Fisher has declined to speak with the investigator. Now, Fisher came back and said that he did speak on August 26th to an investigator via Zoom, but cut the conversation short because he wanted to consult uh, his team before proceeding. Now, and the most recent uh, update on this is also on Friday. Um, 
Fisher briefly expanded on his allegations. He asserted that Johns made, quote, veiled threats against his career and alluded that another actor would play Cyborg, his character from the DC Extended Universe, in a separate television show. Now, the most recent development on this is Jason Momoa. Fans will know him. Uh, DC fans will know him as Aquaman. Posted on his Instagram account a photo of Ray Fisher along with the hashtag I stand with Ray Fisher, and he is the first member of the cast to align themselves with Fisher and his statements. Dave, you're our DC guy. How do you feel about all this? I'm just confused, man. I mean, I'm confused. I've been a big fan of of Joss Whedon for many years. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer was such a seminal show in my life, and and really uh, reinforced sort of my choices of, of, of becoming a nerd. Um... Jeff Johns has written some of my favorite comic books, particularly uh, his run on Green Lantern, which was super influential on on my view of superheroes. And even Hal Jordan, whom I always felt was kind of a boring character, but but Johns really tried to make work. So so hearing these uh, accusations is really distressing. Uh, the idea of thinly veiled threats against someone's career, uh, unacceptable behavior on set, these these sorts of things are, are deeply upsetting and, and cast an even stranger light on this, this very odd production of Justice League. Uh, what a strange movie and how that came together. Now, I've spent a lot of time uh, when I saw this was going to be your news story for this episode trying to just go through what we have uh, as far as knowledge of these events. And there are so many unknowns at this point. Um, Several reports that I read online stated that Fisher can't get into specifics publicly with these accusations due to a non-disclosure agreement that he signed with with Warner Brothers. Um, So it's very difficult without specifics to really, you know, judge this situation. I know at one point, I believe it was John Berg uh, m- made a statement that uh, a lot of this uh, these hurt feelings revolved around the phrase booyah, which uh, apparently Fisher didn't want to say, but it's a phrase that's associated with the cartoon version of Cyborg, and apparently there was an onset discussion of that, at least according to Berg. Based on what Fisher is saying, the, the issue goes much deeper than a creative difference. So... You know, I, I, I'm not sure what to think. The added wrinkle in all this is that now several uh, reports have emerged online as well. There's rumors that he is in negotiations, Ray Fisher, with Warner Brothers to reprise his role as Cyborg in the upcoming Flash movie. I mean, let's let's put aside my feelings about how many people are going to be in a Flash movie uh, at this point, because I'm starting to wonder if the Flash will be in the Flash movie. <laughs> Uh, two Batman and a cyborg at this point. Let's see what else we can throw in there. But it just seems like such a strange situation when there's an active investigation, there's an active um, accusation against uh, you know the collaborators with with Warner Brothers, and at the same time uh, talks about him reprising this role. The situation is so odd and so strained. I think it's really casting a, a very negative light across the behind the scenes of the DCEU especially at a time when it seems like they're starting to get their act together and they start, they're start starting to get things right with, with their movies. So I think ultimately it's just an odd situation and, and, I, and I think as a fan I lack the information, the details to really have an informed opinion on this. 
I'll be just be watching how this develops with great interest. But until I know more, I, I honestly don't know what to say. Yeah, this is uh, a really awkward situation, to be honest. Um, John Berg's name really jumped out to me when I was doing research for this because I remember that he's one of the key um, creators that's going to be behind the Frosty the Snowman project um, that we featured on our story that stars Jason Momoa. And then for Jason Momoa to come out in solidarity with Ray Fisher, that's got to kind of make things a little bit odd, too. So... Um, and then, as you said, for him to continue on with the, char- uh, with the character of Cyborg, um, with no clear resolution on the horizon, this is just really, really odd. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, even looking back at, like, the, 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 the career threat stuff, I, I am assuming, but again, we don't know, that there was more to it than, hey, somebody else is going to play Cyborg in a TV show. Because that did obviously come to pass on, on Doom Patrol. Uh, there is a different actor playing uh, that character on Doom Patrol, which is actually quite common when you're looking at uh, DC projects. I mean, you have uh, Tyler Hoechlin uh, playing Superman on the small screen while Henry Cavill is uh, still playing him on the big screen. So having multiple versions of characters uh, is not uncommon. So th- there's got to be more to this story than what we're hearing. Um, it's just highly unlikely we're going to know more for probably quite a while at this point. Yeah, and, and Joyvin Wade is the actor who does so on Doom Patrol, and I'll, I'll go on the record as saying is I enjoy both performances by both actors, uh, Ray Fisher and Joyvin Wade. Um, I think they're both very, very solid and do great work with the character. And Cyborg is one of my favorite DC characters, um, but uh, it's, it's just really odd to see this going forward. And it kind of echoes back to what we had said um, with the DC layoffs, with a lot of you know, with with DC fandom being the outlier and, and what, what a lot of DC fans were hoping would be to, like, right the ship. But a lot of the press that was coming out when you would hear DC comics in the headlines or DCEU or anything to do with DC in the headlines, it was usually a negative one. And, and for this icky, icky story to be continuing on like this and back and forth like a he said, she said type of deal, it's really, really unfortunate to be dominating the headlines like this. Yeah, totally. Um, here, here's hoping they can resolve the situation and, and, and they can, you know, figure out what it'll take to make all parties happy and heal this rift that is clearly formed between between Fisher and, and Warner. Because again, his performance as, as Cyborg is, is solid and it would be great for him to continue on in that role. Although why every superhero under the sun has to be in the Flash movie <laughs> is a story for another day. Absolutely. Well, that wraps up our nerd news segment for this week. When we come back from our first break, we're going to sit down with comedian, writer, nerd extraordinaire, Mike Lawrence. Stick around. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome back uh, to the Nerd Byword podcast. And for today's Byword Big Talk, we're sitting down with comedian Mike Lawrence. Uh, you know him from Jeff Ross's comedy roast. He was the champion of season one. Uh, you know him as an Emmy-nominated writer from shows like Inside Amy Schumer. You may have known him from the Nerd of Mouth podcast. Um, Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, Mike. So... Every time we have a guest on the show, 
we like to take it back to the beginning. Every nerd loves a good origin story, and that's what we did with our first episode. We talked about our nerd origin stories, and we talked about the things that made us nerdy. For me, it was like Ninja Turtles and and the X-Men series, and for Dave, it was like Batman and uh, Batman the Animated Series and, and uh, like Chris Reeves' Superman. So what is your nerd origin story? What were the first like nerdy things that you got into? Yeah, well, I was born in 83, so that's, that's about like close to it. I mean, I had an older brother. He had He-Man figures, and then I switched to Ninja Turtles, and um, – yeah, I I saw Howard the Duck I think when I was like five or six. Those those duck boobs are the first boobs I've ever seen when he played up magazine. So uh, yeah, I mean, I've always kind of looked and smelled like this. So I think I was just born a nerd. Um, you know, got into wrestling in like '89 because the Ultimate Warrior was a human cartoon um just (laughs) an action figure with less movement um and so yeah that's just immediately that's it um and then just got more into it and more into it Uh, a huge defining nerd moment for me i think was like was always like the year 1992 because that's when um the batman animated series like you guys mentioned X-Men, which is nowhere near close to as good as Batman, which you realize when you're an adult. And um, I think, like, I, I think Eric Larson did a six-part uh, Spider-Man on the adjective list. Uh, and maybe this was in 91 uh, when he when he wrote and drew it. Uh, the Revenge of the Sinister Six. And I had a friend who had the last issue, issue 23, and it was like so ninety one. I think like Speedball was on the cover, and Solo, <laughs> and Sleepwalker was in was in this storyline. And I think like issue like part four is like Spider Man is like like Deathlock. He has like uh, the metal arm and all that. So that just like that was the first time that like I read a part of a six part story, and then I tracked down all the other issues to to get the story. And that that's definitely a pivotal moment in nerddom. Fantastic. Especially in the nineties. It's not it's not like today, like where you can just read it digitally. You had to go like find this stuff like a scavenger hunt. Yeah, we went to like three different stores, yeah. Yeah, and I totally will agree with you on Batman the animated series. Sorry, Chris. Still better than the X Men cartoon. Ah! <laughs> they don't actually ever fight on X Men. It's like like Wolverine and Sabretooth just like tussle. But it's like <laughs> they never cut each other really, then no one can bleed. It, I mean, Batman is just so much more emotional. and Yeah, the writing on that show was fantastic. That scene at the end of Paging the Crime Doctor when he's with Rupert Thorne's brother and he's like, tell me about my father. Come on, man. X-Men never had anything like that. I know that the uh, voice of uh, Cyclops just uh, passed away. And um, I watched like a super cut of every time he says Gene. <laughs> Very, it's much longer than you you you'd think. Well, I, I I'm gonna spoil our next episode, I think, but we're we're gonna create like our dream like casting and like who to direct like the movies, and I could totally see John Boyega screaming Gene. Uh, you just switch out the Ray for Gene, and I totally see him as Cyclops. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, we've never gotten a good on-screen Cyclops because so, he has. He has to be kind of a schmuck, you know, and what they end up doing is they just make him like bland because like there's the two layers to him. Like 
he's the he's the Martin Prince from Simpsons, like the straight A student that wants Professor X's approval, but also like he just has a lot of anger in him. Yeah, last last episode, uh, maybe the one before, I called him the Leonardo of the X Men. He's just that insufferable do goody two shoes guy. Yeah, I don't even. I think he's got more personality than than Leonardo. Even like, you, you ever read the Proteus saga? It's probably the best Cyclops moment for me, at least. It's um, you know, Proteus was like more of a Metagric son. Yeah, and yeah. The reality sh- shifting powers. And so he um, he messes with Wolverine, uh, Proteus does, and everyone's just like, he messes with the whole team like mentally, and Cyclops has to get them back in shape. And this is like right before Dark Phoenix and, and right before Days of Future Past. And he takes on the whole team to get them into fighting spirit, and it's like the most amazing thing. See, I haven't. Dave is completely uninitiated with the X Men. I made him read Joss Whedon's Astonishing for his homework assignment, but he hasn't even dipped his toe into Claremont yet. Ah, uh, uh, just DC guy, born and bred, I guess. Yeah, you got to do the Claremont Burn X Men. It's it's it's. Uh, I read it in uh, high school. It's beyond holds up. Like the the first the first part is okay, but like once you get like. Proteus and all that it's, it's unbelievable and it still holds up now you have uh you have quite a history of injecting your nerdiness into your into your stand-up routines you have albums like you know Sadamantium and Mega Man Child and w- was that a conscious decision on your part or was that something you really had to work towards it was both you know it's like I'll, I'll say you know Patton Oswalt was like an inspiration like when I was um I think like 20 I the bit, the bit that I say that like inspired me to want to do comedy is the uh, he does this uh, bit about the Paws egg painting kit and how like all these other companies try to compete with Paws for like Easter and you know but Paws is the only one that's still around and like there's like he does this act out of like a guy named Henry Paws and he's like back <laughs> in my day we had one color and it was white and it just made me laugh so much and it was just like oh you can just talk about that you can just talk about whatever you want oh cool because my, my mom was a stand-up and um and i i would once saw her once or twice and you know like in the 90s and it was it was less that alternative style and more like observational relatable stuff but then when you like see people just talking about whatever they want you're like oh that that seems fun to me yeah absolutely now we mentioned this in the intro a little bit, but you previously co-hosted a podcast called Nerd of Mouth with uh, Jake Young and super producer Marcus Parks, um, and that drew to a close in 2016. How did that whole thing come about, and, and why was it winding down? Um, it came about, uh, you know, me and Jake were buddies, and, and Marcus also. Marcus let me live in his basement in 2010. He had like this basement where he had to lift the metal grate. I still feel bad because I was the worst roommate. It's it's my it's my literal rock bottom. Like I've I've apologized for it. I was just uh I was just a schmo. I didn't drink or anything, but I I didn't get a job, you know, I was freeloading a bit. Like it was it was not good. Um and I, I'm out of that situation, <laughs> thankfully for the last you know, ten years, but uh I still think about it with regret. But yeah, I mean Marcus you know, was like, Hey, let's do a podcast. And Jake was just, you know, the guy like 
It was funny to me. He still does Wizard and Bruiser with um, Holden McNeely, and it's amazing. Like, they're great at it. We just stopped because I moved, and it was just that thing of, um, you know, I'll be honest. I, I think that their podcast is the better version of what we did, where it's much more research-heavy. Like, a lot of times we would just show up and not even have a subject, and and I think that it was a little thrown together. Um, I, but I also think that, like, podcasts have evolved. And I think like his new show with Holden is a part of that evolution. You know, it's, it's funny, like looking at like last podcast on the left, because what, what that show was to me was, you know, Marcus yeah, was our producer. And at the end, he would always plug what was happening on last podcast. And it was always the weirdest stuff. Like here's the finger eater of Oklahoma. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, it was, like, interesting, but I was always just like, man, this is, like, a weird show. And, you know, they're, I mean, those three guys, Ben, Henry, and Marcus, are just so funny and so passionate. And their enthusiasm for that topic just, just makes it work. But I, I was, like, the idiot who, when I first heard about it, was like, oh, that's that's weird. It's like, like I was, like the, like, the record label guy in every music biopic who's, like, Bohemian Rhapsody. That's not a good song. <laughs> I was a moron. Um, because I, I, I think I would like I would make jokes about just how weird. Because Marcus like would just so passionately just talk about what the next episode was, and it was always it was one of my favorite parts of the podcast because it was just so fascinating. And uh, you know, look, man, they they've done incredible stuff. Yeah, that's actually what made me reach out to you and like see if you'd be willing to come on the show because I saw him with Ryan Panagos on This Week in Marvel recently and then I was like, you know what? I remember Nerd of Mouth and like it was so much fun and I was like, I'm going to I'm going to shout uh, shout out to Mike and and see if he'd be willing to come on the show. So like I'm so excited, you know, for how well they've done. Yeah, but like uh the last time Jake was here, he stayed over my place. We're still good buddies, you know, if I ever see Marcus at like a festival or that ever we're always friendly we're we're all like either married or getting married which is <laughs> amazing to think <laughs> like 10 years ago how, how schlubby we all were and um it's yeah it's, it's awesome i'm mark marcus is one of the the best people and he really did like step in and like save my life in a time where things were rough so i'll always be loyal to that dude so our, our listeners uh, kind of have gotten used to the idea, and we've already alluded to this again, that uh, Chris is very much a Marvel guy. I'm very much a DC kind of guy. And we're constantly trying to to needle each other and kind of convert each other a little bit. And so we've been pointing out like really good runs to each other that you know might help in that conversion process. If you had to pick a favorite DC run and a favorite Marvel run, what would those be and why? Um, well, and let, let's go based on like, if I, if I want to get someone to read more, because I think that's a, a specific thing. I think there's some great runs that are so like continuity heavy or so just thick with story that it's like, it's hard for you to enjoy. Cause I mean, one of the problems with comic books now is they're just written for the same 50,000 people that buy them and, and nobody knew they don't even try to get new people in. So they just, you know, they yeah. I think there's great stories, but there's a lot of regurgitative stuff too. I would say, um, a DC run that I would get somebody into would be, uh, Mark Wade's flash. 
Oh yeah, very good choice. Yeah, I think it's pretty great. I think that it's like, you know, um, I think that you know the '90s is like an underrated time for DC. I think they had a lot of good stuff. The legacy stuff that they did, you know, I it, it probably is my age, but you know, I'm a Kyle Rayner guy. I'm a Wally West guy. Um, and Barry and Hal were boring to me. And when they came back, it was just like I like the other guys. Yeah, I'm right there with you. This is the story of like having to like live in the shadows and overcome expectations. It's always going to be fascinating. Um, I would say, you know, Marvel. There's a run. I'm going to go, and I know it's a little tough for people to read old comics sometimes, but I, I really think that the the Stan and Steve uh, Spider-Man stuff is just some of the best stuff ever made. I think those stories still hold up yep. unbelievably, like even like almost 60 years later. I think that yep. it's like, because I do love both companies. And, you know, I, I think you get to a point, too, where it's like, yeah, you like the characters from this side or that side. But it's really, it really does come down to the creators a lot. Like George Perez is awesome on Avengers, and he's also great on Teen Titans. And I want to read whatever that guy draws because I love looking at his stuff. Um, but I would say, yeah, that, I mean, the Stan and Steve stuff, it's a little tough, I think, for a new reader to see how much of a leap forward it is. Uh, but it, it is, I mean, and it's also DC comics from the 60s a lot of times are so unreadable. Like, I mean, Marvel by far has a better uh, Silver Age output, and I don't even think it's close, like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a massive Fantastic Four fan, but it's like, yeah, look, I, and, and, I, and I love John Byrne's run, but I don't know if I would recommend that to someone as their first run because it's so committed to the original stuff. You know, I think I think maybe Marvels, Marvels would be good. Now, if I remember right, you're a huge Kurt Busiek fan. I, I remember the Untold Tales of Spider-Man was one that I heard you recommend somewhere, and I went and checked it out immediately. Yeah, it's, it's 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 probably yeah, like top five runs for me. Yeah, but that's one where it's like I don't know if I would tell someone to read that first because it's so based on the original yep. Stephen Stan. I, I would say if you really wanted, read the Stephen Stan stuff with the Untold Tales because in the Untold Tales books they tell you the reading order of it all, <laughs> and it all works. It all fits. That's awesome. And what I love about the the Silver Age Marvel stuff, too, is it, it kind of gives you, like, a brief recap. And, like, you know, like, uh, X-Men show used to be, like, previously on X-Men. They would always do that at the beginning because, you know, Stan believed that every comic cause it could have been someone's first comic. That whole kind of, you know, uh, you know whatever branding that, that they, they went with. And it makes it so easy to pick up. So I totally agree with that. It's funny, yeah, they used to treat it like every comic was someone's first. And now... They just reboot the stuff every like year for the same people, <laughs> who really usually don't even want the reboots. If we're honest, yeah, that is true. Um, now we recently discussed on our show how to save "quote unquote" the comic book industry. Do you think it needs saving, and what strategies would you use to save it? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, and a lot of people say this, so I know I'm not the only one. That it's more of like an R&D system than a viable income of just, you know, creating these new characters that could put in other media properties. But like, I mean, 
I don't know if it's the way that comics are sold. I don't know if it's the culture, but there's something very broken and wrong when these movies can make, you know, $2.5 billion, you know, break these records and not get the books to sell more. I think there's such a disconnect, you know, um, I think that it's like, I, I think they alienate both the new fans too much and, and the old fans, you know, where they, they don't make a commitment. So it's like, you'll read a book and it's got way too much continuity and stuff or deviation from what's in the movie you just saw. Or it's, you know, or they make changes to the point that they lose the people that liked it before. Like when, when they gave Spider-Man organic web shooter. You know, it's funny you say, you know, the, the the notion of committing, because I think in a large part, you know, the idea of the new 52, that whole DC Comics reboot, failed in large part because of a failure to commit. Like they said, hey, we want to reboot everything, but then you still have Batman had three previous Robins, and you want to keep all the, the Green Lantern stuff that Johns wrote, so it wasn't really truly a, a reboot and they never really committed to the idea of trying to start fresh, and I think that's probably part of why it failed. But it's also who was who was begging for it to completely start fresh. Like, was the audience that was asking for that going to be larger than the one that wasn't? You know, and and, and you know there were there were yeah some great stories out of the new Fifty Two, but it's like you look at like Grant Morrison's Superman. It's like that could have just been its own thing. Yeah, absolutely. At the end of each episode, we uh, like to hand out what we call our nerd commendations, things that uh, we've been reading uh, recently or playing video games recently or anything like that. Uh, given, you know, the nature of how things have been the last few months and with the lengthy quarantine and everything, has there been anything that you've gotten into recently that you could recommend to our listeners? Yeah, um, I read I read the Tom King Batman run. It does It does not end well. But uh, there's a lot of great stuff in there. I, I would recommend the whole run. I think it's really good comic book wise. Uh, I've been reading Gail Simone's Birds of Prey. Um, and this is all on DC Universe. I thought that was really great. I got the Avengers game. Wasn't a big fan. But, but then I started playing Ghost of Tsushima. And it's one of the best things I've ever played. <laughs> it's phenomenal. Yeah, the, the Avengers game. It's, uh, you know. You fight a lot of robots in Utah, uh, which I don't remember that adventure story, but it's not as fun as you want it to be. They they made Modoc boring, which I didn't I didn't think was possible. They, they did it. <laughs> other other comics, yeah, I've been reading a lot of stuff. I've been I just did. Uh, I'm, I'm getting through all of Dan Slott's Spider Man, and uh, oh god, I thought ends of Earth, ends of the Earth. I I just finished that. That was good. And I'm about to start into Superior again. I love Superior so much. Yeah, it's awesome. And I'm a, I am mean, I I don't think I've ever, like, emotionally connected to a writer's work more than, like, Dan Slott's first few books. Like, I was such a fanboy. Of, and we got him on the show, and it's, you know, probably my favorite moment because it's just a guy I admire, and I got to meet him, and he's just, He's what you want him to be. He's such like a like a, a fun sweetheart who just you know his whole life was like I want to do this job and then he got to do it. It's and uh, and he's so proud of it. Like I think there was like a moment. It was like the first time I met him was in 2010 
and I was doing this show. I think it was called Comic Book Club at 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 the People's Improv Theater, where they would have a comedian and a comic book creator, and he was on the day before um, the first issue of Big Time. I think it's uh, six forty eight, the first uh, you know of his like solo run, and I just like looked at him uh, at one point during the show, and I was like. You're writing Amazing Spider-Man. And he just goes, I know! <laughs> yeah, it's so great. And you can tell like through his run. I love it so much. And actually, I remember that interview when you guys did that. And I was like, I need to go read these books. And I went through and read all of it. And, and it was just so fantastic. And I really appreciate when like a writer, you can tell when they love a character. Yeah, Spider-Man Human Torch is my, my favorite miniseries of all time. Like It, it like just makes me feel... Yeah. It's it's the best. And oh, another thing I'd recommend um, in that same vein is uh, that I, I rewatched it. I watched a lot of it when it came out, but uh, just chronologically, Batman Brave and the Bold, I think was so great. Yeah, that was such an interesting take on the character and, and it worked really, really well. I totally agree with that. That was a great, that was a great series. Yeah, because you know, it's like you watch that and you know, people always say that like Marvel is the house of ideas, but like I actually think DC is where like, DC just has all these weird concepts, like these elevator pitch characters, that, you know, that you don't know that much about, or they don't even have a rogues gallery or whatever, but they're just kind of fun. Like the, uh, you know, the haunted tank or enemy ace and, you know, Brave and the Bull just has all of them in it. Commandy, you know, they, they make you cry over Buona Beast in that show. So those would be some uh, recommendations. Fantastic. Now, speaking of DC, we're a few weeks out from DC Fandom. Our last episode was all of our reactions and itemized lists, but what's your overall reaction to everything that you saw? I thought they knocked it out of the park. I really did. I think that, like, I think, you know, we can't uh, stress enough how miserable of a, of a year it is in the summer and in so many different ways and for so many different people. I don't think anyone isn't affected. Um, emotionally, financially, physically, probably. Um, and it felt like, you know, it felt like Comic-Con weekend. Like, we're getting these cool announcements. Like, and, and the different stuff felt different. I mean, the Batman trailer was great. Uh, we got two video games coming out. Like, Suicide Squad, Kill the Justice League, which looks... I mean, you're going to get to play... King Shark, that that, and he's voiced by the wrestler Samoa Joe. Like that's awesome to me. Absolutely. <laughs> I thought Wonder Woman uh, eighty four. I I think the first trailer they did is like maybe my favorite superhero trailer in like the last ten years. That was like set to um, Joy Division's Blue Monday, but the the second one was good. I mean, but it's like I watched a lot of oh oh the Suicide Squad. The James Gunn reveal of all just those different characters. Like I had a fun hour just like looking up who some of them were because even I didn't know. <laughs> I can't believe they got Polka Dot Man in that movie. We talked about that at length. They are putting Polka Dot Man on the big screen. Blows my mind. See, he's what I know, but then it was like, like Blackguard was one, and I and I I read like Booster Gold recently, but the costume looks so different and the name isn't that memorable. And I was like. Oh yeah, that's Blackguard. He's a booster gold nemesis. <laughs> you know the fact that like Idris Elba is playing like a guy from you know John Byrne Superman run. 
blood sport. <laughs> it's mind blowing. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, so I, yeah, I thought I thought they like they nailed it. Uh, it just made me really excited for a lot of stuff. So that that's that's my opinion. Yeah, I do have to ask what your reaction was to the Snyder Cut trailer because that's been hotly debated between uh, between Chris and myself. I mean, I feel like that. that my thoughts on that whole thing. I, I'm happy to go into it. <laughs> I'll try to be brief. I find it the whole Snyder thing to be so confusing and perplexing that like, I feel like people retcon that he made two good DC movies, which he did not. Uh, those movies are horrible and against my beliefs of what those characters should be. And then like having this, like the same way I feel about people who deny um, COVID and mask is how I feel about Snyder people. Like I didn't, <laughs> really think they existed until i like saw them and heard them and like it's heartbreaking to me because you know i mean the guy made pa kent a dick which i didn't think was possible i don't know why you would do that you know pa kent killed himself which was horrible and then i mean batman vs superman is just not good and i don't think you know look he's doubling down we're gonna get four hours uh, he's, <laughs> he, he used Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen again, which is the most overused song ever. Uh, do, do you remember the, the week that Trump won Leonard Cohen passed and Kate McKinnon saying Hallelujah as Hillary Clinton and then look at the camera and says, I'm not giving up and neither should you. It's just like, Oh yes. Yes. It, it, it's like, yeah, even though you guys had him as a guest last year, but whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the Snyder thing, it's just why, I mean, look, the, the movie, none of his movies made over a billion or, or even close to it. They all flopped like relatively, but a justice league, I mean, a Batman versus Superman movie should make at least $1.5 billion. And if it doesn't, then someone screwed up and, and they really did. And, uh, and so now we're getting this justice league where, Getting, I mean, the CGI dark side, like, it, I, I love that people are like, Steppenwolf looks so much better now. It's like, but he's still not going to have a personality, probably. <laughs> he's still Steppenwolf. <laughs> you know, I I just, I don't, I don't get the Snyder thing. I don't get, because uh, I didn't hear many people talk about those movies being good when they came out. And then I guess, like, there was this contingency. And one of my best friends was like, he came out to me as a Snyder fan and was like afraid that I was going to judge him. <laughs> I mean, look, my thing, like what you want. And for the people that are looking forward to it, that's great. Um, it's also interesting that people completely turned on, on Joss Whedon, you know, or it's like, yeah, but he's given us a good comic book movie. This guy has it. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love like Snyder also. My favorite thing about Watchmen is like, you know, Snyder is so violent, and the one moment where he could be as violent as he wants, he gives us a clean death with the Manhattan bomb going off. It's like, dude, you're going to have Superman snap someone's neck in four years. Be gory here. You don't have to do it there. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it's been deeply upsetting to me to see the trajectory of, uh, of Superman generally as a character on the big screen. And e even... Uh, and we were talking about this last week, but even the idea that, you know, in the 
Suicide Squad game, we're again getting some kind of evil Superman, whether that's evil outright or brainwashed or something. Yeah, because you know what it is? Like, look, Mar- I think that Superman and Captain America are like two of the hardest characters to, to get right because it's less about who they are and more about what they mean to other people. And I think it's like Superman, is, he has to be a good person. <laughs> And he has to be—he has to be more Kansas than Krypton. And I don't think that the Snyder version was. I—I I read somewhere where it was like he has less than 500 words in uh, Batman vs Superman. Like he barely says anything. And I read in an article. I think it's—he says 560 words, and that includes just when he yells. It's unbelievable. Do you think it was a retcon, or do you think there was a large contingency of Snyder fans all along? Because they didn't show up at the theater. You know that that that's an excellent question. I I really I really think there's some revisionist history going on. Um, I think there was a big disappointment with the Justice League movie. It wasn't quite what people were looking for, and so I think a lot of people started latching on to this idea that there was a better version out there. And I really hope that what we get is. But based on Snyder's history of working with comic book characters, it's difficult for me. To, to see something positive coming out of this. I, it's very possible that this will be at least as, if not more disappointing than the theatrical cut in the long run. Yeah, I love it too, because it's like, he can't do two hours, but now people are excited for four. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, you know, but you know what it is too for me is that like, I think fundamentally the, the story itself is based on, you know, the the Jeff Johns, Jim Lee, New 52 origin uh, stuff. And it's not that great of a story. You know, like, I, I love the character of Cyborg, but I don't like that they made him into Kitty Pride. Uh, you know, where he's like this point of view character and he's amazed by everything. I like that he was in the Teen Titans and that he has credibility. It's like, you can have him in the Justice League, but give him that resume also. And I, I think the whole Barry Allen's mom being killed and the dad in prison, you didn't need to do that. It's just not everyone, you know, and, and how Jordan's dad died in a plane crash. Like, they don't all have to be sad. Well, and I think and I think Ray Fisher does well with what he's given in the film. I think he's his acting is one of the few strengths. But I feel like that role should be Martian Manhunter, justice for Martian Manhunter. So it just seems like he's just kind of out of place there. No, I think Cyborg should be on the team. I just think that it's like, just give him some history. I, I also think what doesn't make sense to me is the, the the version of Batman in these movies, they just want everything where they want to be able to make exploding penguin jokes and say that he had different Robins, but they also want him to be this like fearful you know, urban myth that brands people and that the cops haven't seen. Like, you can't have a bat signal and, you know, (laughs) trophy cases and then also have him be this guy that most people don't even think exists. It doesn't make sense. With with so much, you know, disappointment um, on the DCEU side and and with, uh, you know, a lot of strengths and really a chapter ending on the MCU side... What what are your hopes as a comic book fan for the, the those cinematic universes moving forward? I mean, I gotta say, like, in, you know, DC fandom, I think, cemented this. I'm more excited for DC's 
upcoming output um, because I think that that I'm a person I loved Infinity War. I liked Endgame, and I wish I could love it, and I just don't. I you know I just I just find it like it's fine. Uh, it took me like almost a year to watch it again because I was emotionally like afraid to. <laughs> <laughs> like I I just you know because like Endgame it just Infinity War was so awesome and 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 then it just Endgame felt like the like a tribute to the cinematic universe itself and not the Marvel universe. Like it felt like we were saying goodbye to Robert Downey Jr. more than Tony Stark. <laughs> it just was like a little too yeah. metal for me. I mean, it's also like, man, I already spent two hours in Thor: The Dark World, and you're bringing me back to this. <laughs> 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 yeah. I was like, you have you have the chance to make people forget it happened because it's a very forgettable movie. You're bringing me back to that one. <laughs> um. So yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be some interesting Marvel stuff. Like, I mean, I love Taskmaster, so I'm excited to see him and Black Widow, and uh, what happens, you know, even with Natasha and all that. And then um, Eternals, like Eternals is, I barely know about Eternals. Like, I read the Neil Gaiman um, stuff, but like, I mean, Jack Kirby is like the greatest comic book creator of all time, but. Some of his stuff is just hard to get into. And Eternals was just one of those, like, eh, this is fine. This one's Jesus. This one's also Jesus. Like That feels like a lot of, like, new gods and Eternals. Just Kirby be like, everyone's Jesus. So much for Jesus. He was a big idea kind of man. <laughs> He's the best. I mean, God, God bless, God bless Jacob Kurtzberg. But, um... I think I think DC like they're already figuring it out. I, I think the, I love Shazam. I mean, we this is so weird as like a, a lifelong comic book fan, but like an Aquaman movie made more than the Justice League. <laughs> 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 That's I mean I know there's like the, you know the cliche jokes, but it is like it was kind of true. I mean you know when you when you're reading comics of the '90s, they're like. Yeah, I see the hook in the hand. You're still not cool, you doofus. <laughs> Arthur. Um, but look, like it did well, and there were fun. You know, you know why I like DC movies is because I don't know exactly what's going to happen in them. I don't know how they're going to look. You know, Marvel has a formula in some ways, and and sometimes it really works when they let people deviate from it a bit, like with Ragnarok. But sometimes it's like yeah, the villains are forgettable more often than not so i like when i don't know yeah i mean like i thought shazam shazam's like one of my favorite comic book movies in the last five years and i don't think marvel could have made a movie like that yeah i totally i totally love shazam there's there's lots of love for shazam on this pod um now you previously stated that the ever-loving blue-eyed thing is your favorite superhero someone who has not yet seen a fantastic if you'll forgive the pun on-screen portrayal if you were in charge of casting, who would you cast as the ideal Ben Grimm? I think, you know, you know, to me, it's, it's mainly the voice, right? Like, he's only going to be Ben for, like, a little bit. And to me, the voice that I hear, and physically, maybe he's not the best, but um, just because he's so old, is Jonathan Banks from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, the guy who plays Mike, the old curmudgeon guy. 
Ah, uh-huh. that that's an interesting choice. But I love that, like, just that world weariness, that, that like, defeatedness, but there's still hope in his voice, too. Like, he cares about family. Because, um, I like, my, my ideal Mr. and Miss, uh, Mr. Fantastic and Invisible Woman, and this was a few years ago, but uh, Ty Burrell and Julie Bowen from Modern Family, I thought would be the best. So, so Chris actually brought up something interesting as we were preparing for this episode, and that's that he really enjoys uh, your bits when you speak about your experience working at McDonald's. Yeah. Uh, he, he spent uh, time in high school and college uh, working there as well. I worked in fast food at Hardy, so we were commiserating about that a little bit. You credit that time for your ability to deal with hecklers. Can you, can you tell us a bit, little bit more about that, how that experience shaped you and your performance? Yeah, I mean, if you get like uh, yelled at in the drive-through, then comedy and, and survive, then comedy isn't is, is in no way uh, more degrading, <laughs> for sure. I think you know, I had people hate me just because of my voice, like just yelling at a box, um, which you know, you you do it long enough, and uh, you get underpaid long enough, you start to take that personally. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with that. It's funny, I, I, I worked at McDonald's seven years, I have like a quick short answer about that, but then I went on like a 15-minute Snyder soliloquy. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about what we're passionate about, you know? Oh, that's exactly right. Uh, no, it's also no secret, you alluded to this earlier, uh, that you're a huge pro wrestling fan. Uh, how did that start? And other than Ultimate Warrior, who are you? some of your other uh, favorite performers? I love Earthquake. I want to make a movie about Earthquake because I think he's just like such a fascinating guy. He was just this like, like big fat balding dude <laughs> in uh, the early '90s that I didn't realize he was only 27 when he wrestled Hogan at SummerSlam '90, which is insane because he looks 49. <laughs> he looks so old, <laughs> and he was just this really. Uh, he was on this. There was this website called WrestleCrap that would like highlight different um you know goofy bad gimmicks in wrestling and he was like a friend of the site they did interviews with him he wrote the foreword for the book and um you know talking about how like it was just a job and he seemed like the most professional dude but his real life was that like he went to japan as an undefeated sumo wrestler out of college and then um like found love with like this lounge singer and they came back to the states or no, they came back to Canada at first and then the States. And, you know, like I've watched the footage of him retiring from sumo and saying that he's about to be a pro wrestler and everybody laughing. And then like four years later, you know, he's against Hulk Hogan in the semi-main event of SummerSlam. So he did all right. I, I, I love that dude personally. Uh, Jake Roberts, not the person, but uh, the promos. <laughs> I think he, he is some of the best ever. Uh, I'm a big fan of AEW now. Uh, MJF is like my favorite wrestler now. He's just such like uh, a great heel. Um, Orange Cassidy is awesome. Um, yeah, I I watch the pay per views. I I'm, I'm I'm really committed to it. WWE not as much. It's it's hard to on a moral level <laughs> support that company. <laughs> Really, really on a- any level at this point, I remember being very much into the Attitude Era there for a while. Uh, it kind of hit me right at the at the right time, and I was a big fan of The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin and all that. 
but th their product has has shifted in such an odd way that there's very little to really grab your attention in it anymore. It seems very bland compared to some of the competition that's sprung up. I think. Yeah, it's it's micromanaged to too much of a point where it's like, and look, AEW goes in the other way sometimes where it's like they give them too much freedom. You know, like uh, like Jake Roberts, who is uh, the manager for Lance Archer last week, was like. I'm just a squirrel looking to bust a nut. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> you're just watching this like old alcoholic like talking about busting a nut, and you're just like, this has nothing to do with wrestling. <laughs> oh, Eddie, Eddie Kingston, I'm really loving now. He's this guy that is on AEW, and he's wrestled for years and years. Um, and he was just like a guy who's been forever on the indies, and he's like, everyone's made it but me. Like he kind of sounds like the thing. He could be Ben Grimm. <laughs> he's definitely, uh, definitely from the Yancey Street gang. He's awesome. Yeah, I remember growing up in that era too. And like the first time I saw The Rock, and I was like, "What is this? I have to watch." And it's like when you have like big magnetic personalities like that, and then you know they move on to bigger and better things. You know, you're kind of left with this. I remember buying like the 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 WWE 2K20 or whatever, like and it was on sale and like, I played it for like 20 minutes and like, I just turned it off. Like, they're just like, this is the legacy. And like, they're just used to being the, the, the monopoly and everything. And, and now you have the AEW, like this upstart hungry company and they're, they're really giving them a push, which is really cool to see. Yeah. And like Kenny Omega is like been at street fighter tournaments and stuff like, I think their video game is going to be pretty great. Like a lot of those guys like lived in Japan. I think they're going to, I think they're going to do an awesome job. I'm, I'm excited about it. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, cause I get the WWE games every year. There isn't a 2k 21. Cause 2k 20 was that bad. It was so awful. Yeah. And I'm and I might be showing my my video game geekdom here, but I thought really the last wrestling game that I just purely enjoyed from a gameplay perspective was. Uh, uh, WWF No Mercy on the N64. There was something about those THQ-produced uh, games and the systems and that arcade feel of them that was really, really fun. That seems to be missing in a lot of the newer games. It's very simulation-heavy, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I didn't have an N64, and I feel like there's a, a part of like video game fandom that I missed out on because I'm not a first-person shooter guy because I just didn't play GoldenEye. I didn't have it. I didn't have, you know, No Mercy. I was always like, I was Sega, then, then you know, PlayStation. I've gotten every iteration of, of PlayStation. I'm going to get a PS5. And uh, I just never... I'm, I'm excited because I know that uh, Mario 64 is coming to Switch. I've never played Mario 64. Oh, you missed out. That, that game is fantastic yeah i always hear great things about no mercy i just didn't play it like but i loved um the first few smackdowns are great yeah smackdown one and two were my favorite yeah, yeah the second one i think was it like know your role or whatever is that one yeah. awesome. i did story mode with devon dudley <laughs> oh god the dudleys i haven't thought about them in years now uh one of your biggest claims to fame, really, is is your involvement with roasts. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, you were the the winner of season one of Jeff Ross Presents Roast uh, Battle. Uh, you did uh, work with Comedy Central roasts of celebrities like Rob Lowe and Bruce Willis. H how do you prepare for something like a roast? 
Is it different from a typical stand-up routine? Like, how, how do you prepare for something like that? It's all research. It's all, like, looking stuff up, what you relate to, what you find funny, um, just different angles, just, like, a, a reading a Wikipedia, watching interviews, just getting inspired by the person. I mean, there's times where you'll find, like, the funniest thing, and it's just too long of a setup, like, to make the joke. But um, I find, yeah, roaster just, yeah, like, it's just looking stuff up. I, I did the roast of Bruce Pritchard at uh, the first StarCast uh, wrestling uh, convention. And, you know, and I, and I did a few Iron Sheik roasts years ago. And those are, like, I mean, that's what I love. So getting to research stuff that I'm already into or just not even having to research because I know it all <laughs> is the fun. Like, I would, I would love to, to do, like, the roast of Rob Liefeld or something. Like, let me roast some comic book creators, please. Oh, that would be amazing. I don't know. You might get blocked for that one. Well, in fairness, everybody gets blocked eventually by Rob. <laughs> You've also done some work as a writer on shows like Inside Amy Schumer and the new Amazon Prime show Upload. Um, you even hosted a really cool Snapchat series that I really, really dug that was called You're Wrong. Uh, do you have, like, a dream project that you're kind of working towards or would love to you know, make happen in the future. Yeah. You know, different ideas and stuff like written a couple, um, you know, TV pilots and things like that. I mean, there's a part of me that would love to work on one of those CW shows just to see like, cause it, I, I mean, yeah, I love comic books, but like, I don't watch a lot of them. It's hard for me to get into them. A lot of them feel the same. I would love to like apply like my sense of humor to that stuff. Just to see, you know, I, I would, yeah, I would love to work on something superhero-y. I mean, my, my dream, dream project is a, a show about the Wrecking Crew, because I love those guys. And I think uh, they, so great. yeah, they're awesome. And uh, it's just, to me, it's like an Apatow kind of, you know, 40-year-old virgin, like, it's like, they're these selfish, like, criminal guys. But one of them was like, grab my magic crowbar and I'll share my powers with you, which is like pretty <laughs> selfless and like sweet. It's like it's just like a gentle bromance underneath all of it. Like I just always like I've always loved those like beefy <laughs> characters that are, you know, that are like slightly homoerotic. Like, I mean, God, I I, I love Black Tom Cassidy and Juggernaut. Oh, it's so great. Because it feels like they're in love with each other. Like you know, I think yeah. there's the one, there's the one issue, God, I don't remember, where, like, Black Tom falls and, like, Juggernaut jumps after him and everything. Yeah, I remember that one, yeah. And it's like, you know, Black Tom is, like, uh, you know, the bastard of, like, uh, Banshee's family, and then you have this evil stepbrother in Juggernaut, so, like, they even bond over that. <laughs> I think, I think, yeah, like, yeah, I would love to write a buddy comedy with those guys, or, yeah, the Wrecking Crew. Now, are there any uh, projects that you're currently working on or anything that has been delayed by the pandemic? What have you been into? Um, I'm writing on uh, The Soup on E! every week. So that's my, my day job. And just watching uh, reality shows and stuff like that. Um, working remotely, but I love the people I work with. And it's just watching the silliest stuff and making jokes about it. That's fantastic. It's fun. Talk about the housewives. There's worse things in the world than that. 
I have to ask real quick on the show Upload. When I saw the trailer for that, I was like, "This is something that like I've never seen before." It was such like a unique thing, and like so, where so many so much content is seems like a retread of things that you've seen before with with such a unique show like that. What was it like writing on that? It was fun. I mean, I you know, uh, Greg Daniels. Like, I mean, I'm I'm a massive Simpson fan, which I I know is cliche for a fat white guy with glasses and a beard but but i am it's you know it's it it has shaped my humor more than anything and uh you know getting to work with the guy who wrote bart fills his soul was like a dream <laughs> like and i know i know he's done the office and, and parks and rack and, and other stuff but like he you know he worked on an episode that has the line you sold my soul for pogs, which I think is one of the greatest lines ever. <laughs> um, and he's, you, you know, oh, he wrote the uh, Lisa's wedding episode too with the future, and that's like that's such a great episode. So yeah, I mean, just getting to work with him, and uh, you could tell like this was something that he thought about for years and years and was really passionate about, and he was cool. We we always like to ask people that come on the pod to kind of, you know, g give us some information for our listeners about how they can keep up with you if they want to, you know, see more of your work. Uh, how can uh, people keep up with your work and support you? Yeah, uh, at Mike Lawrence Comedy on Instagram. I don't I don't have Twitter anymore. I, I did that for mental health. Um, it helps. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I... I post personal stuff there sometimes because people are like, stick to being funny. And I'm like, it's my page. I can write what I want. Um, yeah, so I'd say that, uh, Instagram, and then, um, yeah, watch the soup so I could keep having a job right now. <laughs> so hard. I mean, you know, so many productions shut down and we came back and it was, like, exciting just to have, yeah, I mean, I know I'm very, very fortunate right now to, to be working. Well, thanks so much for this, Mike. This is just really a pleasure and, and lots of laughs. And we really appreciate you taking time to, to sit down with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, man, this was fun, guys. It was good meeting you. Well, we appreciate you. Thank you so much. And I'm going to go back to save the island of Tsushima. All right, nerds. Thanks so much for listening to our interview with Mike Lawrence. When we come back from this, our final break, we're going to hit you with two more nerd commendations. All right, welcome back to our final segment, Nerd Commendations. Dave, we both have German heritage. Yours is a larger percentage than mine, but you're taking us back to the motherland. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, my friend, uh, it's going to get weird again. Uh, as my nerd commendations so often are, I'm diving into something that might be a little obscure to some of our audience members. But this one's pretty special to me. As a kid growing up in Germany... Writer Ottfried Preussler loomed incredibly large in my life. He wrote several of my all-time favorite children's books, including The Little Witch, The Little Ghost, and The Robber Hotzenplotz. So these books uh, could be uh, humorous, uh, they could get dark sometimes. They were absolutely fantastic and, and really shaped um, my childhood reading habits. But the one that has stuck with me the longest and that I, that I keep revisiting over the years is a book called Krabat. Uh, this 
was really my first run-in with some darker themes in children's literature, including the idea that evil can be seductive. The book is set in the mid-17th century, uh, essentially during the Thirty Years' War, and follows a 14-year-old beggar boy named Krabat, and when he becomes an apprentice at a mill, he discovers that he didn't just sign up to become a miller, he also um, signed up to become a student of dark magic. The first few skills he learns are harmless enough, like turning into a raven, for example. But he soon discovers something more sinister. Each year, one of his friends and fellow apprentices dies. With the help of a girl from a nearby village, Grabat is determined to avenge his friend's deaths and free himself from the evil miller. The book has been translated into English several times under several different names. The most recent translation is called Grabat and the Sorcerer's Mill, uh, no doubt riffing on Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. The book is basically about power, about the temptation of power, and how young people can get ensnared by it, and how uh, ultimately we all have to reject that temptation of power. It's a tale of good versus evil in its purest sense. Obviously, the book is nearly 50 years old at this point, and it takes place even further in the past. So there are things about it that certainly feel dated, but it is still very much worth reading. You know, when I first read uh, Harry Potter, uh, I sensed parallels there right away. The orphan boy who learns about magic. You know, basically, Grabat is that story, but if magic was bad and the teachers at Hogwarts were all evil. It's a great book, and I frequently revisit it. It's dark, it's a little twisted, almost like the original Grimm's fairy tales. Neil Gaiman actually has called it one of his favorite books, and I just can't argue with that. It is also one of mine. That's super interesting, and I, I, I always love revisiting the Grimm fairy tales and, and like getting a peek behind like the real story, like uh, not not the Disney version that's that's made for the masses, but like the real version. So I'm definitely gonna have to check this one out. Yeah, it's it's definitely highly recommended, and thankfully, uh, much of uh, Otfried Preussler's work is actually in print. Uh, in the United States right now, in translation, uh, thanks to a press out of, I believe, uh, New York City. And those translations are newer translations and are, are quite good and true to the uh, original German. Uh, very authentic, and, and I like those probably uh, the best out of the translations I've seen. Now, Chris, what are you recommending to us this week? I'm giving you a big one. Uh, I'm recommending the Jonathan Hickman Marvel run. This takes place from about 2005 to 2018, I believe. And it, it covers several different titles. 2008 to 2016, excuse me. It's, it's, it's really an incredible, meticulous sense of world building. They really just let him have the keys to the car and just go wherever he wanted to go with this. Um, in a lot of ways, it's like a graduate-level course. And I, Dave, I think you saw this in the Dawn of X books, and you know it, it, it kind of was overwhelming for you, is those pages of just like all information. There was no comic book art. It was just all, this is the information that you need to see. Here are a bunch of maps, and here are a bunch of charts. So it's almost like a graduate-level course. And I truly think if, if you're really wanting to get into the, the new X-Men books... Uh, this is 
I think even better prep for those Dawn of X titles than even reading X-Men comics. I, I know that you had uh, previously expressed a lot of trouble, especially with the Powers of Ten, Powers of X books, um, with the, the future stuff and a lot of the, the script. Um, and, and if you read this run, I think it'll prepare you for, for stuff like that. Um, a lot of the stuff that you see in there, I haven't necessarily been aided in my X-Men run with understanding that better but once i i look back at the hickman marvel run that i i completed a couple years ago it, it was much better there and then i feel like this is a true masterpiece um it has a lot of small detail payoffs that are years in the making similar to the jason aaron thor run he has years and years to tell this story and even minute little details from different titles like um when he's when he's talking about the secret warriors it pays off in his avengers and new avengers run um you know that was three or four titles previously um and i i really appreciate a writer um and a creator that truly understands the characters that they're working with and i'll I'll just present the reading orders and then the titles that it goes through and then like some commentary on them. It starts with secret warriors. Um, and that's, I, I, in my opinion, that's what I wanted agents of shield to be. Um, it picks up uh, with Daisy Johnson and quake and like Nick Fury, um, the Caucasian iteration of Nick Fury training these secret warriors. Um, it's kind of like a spy thriller, um, these secret warriors uh, to be his own little super team that, that nobody knows about. Um, and then it moves into a completely out of left field title called S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, with periods separating each of the letters of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, basically what that is, is it's like the secret society of the S.H.I.E.L.D. throughout human history. And it goes back to like ancient Egypt um, and huge figures from history, and they're all part of this secret society that are protecting things. You have uh, Sir Isaac Newton is a part of the um, Society of the Shield. You have Nostradamus. You have a really interesting um, storyline with Leonardo da Vinci is my favorite part of this. But it's some really meta and some really cerebral stuff. If uh, if you're like me, you like really like I, I really like reading that. I really have to go back and like reread the pages sometimes because it really makes you think. Um, and it's a cool idea on historical fiction and, and secret societies. His Fantastic Four run um, and the FF Future, uh, Future Foundation title is just the best for me. Um, I think it's probably the best Reed Richards I've ever read, um, aside from like, you know, Stan and Jack. Um, he, he wants to solve everything and it, He's so in his head and he's so intelligent that he can't get out of his own way. He, he tries to solve everything and he creates all these problems just by being too doggone smart. Um, and I think Reed is just a fascinating character that um, I think a lot of times we take for granted because he's the stretchy guy. But um, this is some really great Reed Richards content. And Franklin Richards, um, based on this run, is just one of my favorite characters of all time. He's so fascinating. He's so interesting. He's a spunky little kid, and he's really, really cool. Um, the Future Foundation is a fun idea. You get a cool Spider-Man costume. I love the black and white designs of the costumes. Super cool. I love the way that he writes Spider-Man. That's like my all-time favorite superhero. And, and I really like his quips and the, his relationship with Johnny. It's so great. Um, 
And then you go into the Ultimate Universe. He takes up with the Ultimates um, and Ultimate Thor. Ultimate Thor, just picking that title up is such an interesting reimagining of, of the character that you think you know for so long. And then he has Ultimate Reed Richards become one of the greatest villains I've ever read. Just, I, you know, you know, fans of this show know how much I love alt-universe stories. And just seeing that point where Reed kind of just falls by the wayside. And then you juxtapose that with his Fantastic Four title. And where you have, you know, the still heroic, the yet heroic Reed, you know, getting in his own way and causing all these problems. And then a, a Reed who goes rogue and becomes like the biggest villain in the ultimate universe is really fascinating to see. And then he shifts to the, his Avengers and new Avengers run. Um, so it was my first experience reading the Avengers title. Um, but new Avengers is the real treat here. The, the Illuminati, the relationship and the rivalry and the back and forth spitefulness between T'Challa, the black Panther and Namor is just pitch perfect. It's probably one of the best, rivalries slash nemeses I've ever read in comics. They truly hate each other and you're just waiting for it all to explode and you're ready to see Wakanda and Atlantis just be completely destroyed because these two hate each other so much. Um, And then the path towards secret wars is just impeccable, like world building and you can see exactly where he's going with this. And then secret wars is probably my favorite crossover ever. Dr. Doom is like one of the best characters in comics and, very few people write Doctor Doom better than Jonathan Hickman. Um, you have some haunting art by Asad Ribich, who is one of my favorite artists in the game. His stuff on um, Thor: God of Thunder um, in 2012 with Jason Aaron is is just a beautiful masterpiece. It's almost like brush strokes. It's just a beautiful picturesque art. Um, and then the Fallout. I will admit the Fallout after that a bit uh, after that event was botched by some writers. Namely the Miles team and then the treatment of the Fantastic Four property. Um, I have my suspicions that that was due to the film rights, that they basically just did away with the Fantastic Four and did not treat the X-Men very well at all. But uh, overall, it, it took me a uh, summer vacation. It took me about two months to complete this whole run. Um, you can find a reading order on Marvel Unlimited. You just go to Search Creator and then Jonathan Hickman, and it'll say, read in this order, this title in this order. Um, I also found a good reading order on comicbookherald.com, and we can put that in our show notes as well. But yeah, I just really love this. I think Hickman's one of my favorite writers, and just letting him paint is uh, with with this story is just like watching Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo just go to work, and it's just really a treat to to enjoy. Yeah, you, uh, you you definitely are making me want to give this a shot. The, the interesting thing about Hickman is that I keep brushing up against him without ever getting deep into any of his runs. I remember reading a little bit uh, uh, Future Foundation stuff because I was you know trying to follow Peter Parker, and he ended up in that book for a while. You know, as a fairly new fan of X-Men comics, and you did allude to that, I found it extremely difficult to get into his X-Men run. It seems very dense, packed with references and characters I know little or nothing about. It seems more like um, you have to have a really deep knowledge uh, of the Marvel Universe in in order to enjoy some of the stuff, at least that I've encountered from him so far. So, as someone who wants to explore more of Hickman's work, what do you think of all of this stuff that he worked on is the most accessible, the most new reader-friendly among his works? 
Um, if you look on Comic Book Herald, uh, the website I listed, they'll give you some background knowledge. And if you want to look at some of the previous stuff before you get to his run, kind of like sets up the scene. Probably, if I had to pick one that I, if, if I said start reading this, it would be between the Fantastic Four and um, the the uh, New Avengers. But, you know, with New Avengers, you kind of need the Avengers title. It's similar to the how Powers of X and, uh, excuse me, Powers of Ten and House of X were kind of two titles that were really one. They were alternating week on, week off. You kind of had to follow the story between two books. So if, if you if you told me just pick one, I would go with the Fantastic Four, simply because of um, his writing of Reed Richards is just so spot on, and it's so enjoyable to watch. Like, he's a dad, so as a father, you get it. Like, you have, like, one of the most powerful individuals in the in the Marvel universe, but you don't know what to do. What's best for him because you're trying to be a dad, but he's also like the most one of the most powerful mutants. You're not a mutant, so you don't know how to relate to him. It's just really interesting and complex um, relationship. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I actually uh, enjoy a, a good Fantastic Four run. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned the 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 heel turn, so to speak, of Ultimate Reed Richards. Because I, I remember very much enjoying the early goings of Ultimate Fantastic Four. And I really enjoyed that depiction of a, of a young Reed. And seeing him go bad is, is one of uh, so many missteps, I think, in how the Ultimate Universe was ultimately handled. Uh, don't even get me started on Jeff Loeb's Ultimatum miniseries, which <laughs> is just atrocious. I almost feel like, um, since you love Marvel so much... And I did follow the Ultimate Universe deeply. Uh, you and I might need to do an episode at some point where we kind of go through the the good and bad of the Ultimate Universe. I think that would make for an interesting episode. Absolutely. Um, my exposure to that, as of right now, before I get give myself some homework here, I read everything of Ultimate Spidey, Peter and Miles, um, and then I read these Ultimate titles and Ultimate Thor, uh, the Ultimates uh, that Hickman wrote, and then and then Thor. But um, I think I. What's what's the one where and this was part of the Spider Man one where Magneto like flooded New York City? Is that That's Ultimatum. That's Ultimatum. Well, I think now that I now that I mentioned that, I think it was just the Spider Man related issues that I read. Yeah, well, I would highly recommend that you stick with the Spider Man related issues because the main <laughs> series is some of the most atrocious writing uh, and mishandling of characters I think I have ever seen in my life. I, I can probably spend a good solid 20 minutes talking about why that miniseries was atrocious. A, a crime against nerddom, if you will. <laughs> it's really interesting when you think about, um, and we've we've talked about Jeff Loeb um, and uh, his warts, so to speak, on this podcast before, but you have, and I've started reading The Long Halloween um, based on that conversation and based on the Batman trailer. Um, and it's really, really interesting So how you can have something, you know, that's so widely regarded and then something that is so disregarded and so hated upon, like the, to, the two polar opposites from the same creator. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, I think Loeb's trajectory... Uh, almost reminds me a little bit of Frank Miller's trajectory. He had the highest highs, but he also had some of the lowest lows in the quality of his work. All right, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd Byword podcast. We want to thank you for joining in. We want to thank 
Mike Lawrence for sitting and talking comics and comic book movies and fast food work uh, with us for for such a, a great interview. We always appreciate your support. Um, if you want to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at the uh, excuse me at Nerd By Word. And you can find us on Facebook at at the Nerd By Word. You can also see uh, find us on Instagram and Twitter individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. And uh, please be sure to tune in to our next episode. We have some exciting stuff coming up, uh, including, I think next week we'll be probably ready to uh, talk a little bit about a special Halloween project that we're going to be doing throughout the month of October. There's an exciting announcement coming there that I think our listeners will be very interested in. We're going to get Chris a little bit out of his comfort zone, I believe. Oh, Jesus. Um, Yeah, so you guys will be excited about that. I don't know how I feel about it. Um... My light bill for the month of October is probably going to shoot through the roof because uh, all the lights will be left on in my home. But, uh, yeah, thanks, guys, for all of your support. We love you. Keep talking comics. Keep reading comics. Stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. 